Good morning, church. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be sharing God's word with you today. Uh, we're going to be picking up in the book of John. Um, it's our usual practice uh, to preach through books of the Bible because we, invi- we value context. We value context. Um, and so we're going to be in John chapter 12 today, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 8. So a little bit, small chunk of John chapter 12 today. And so my question to kind of begin today is, what is the model of the Christian life? Particularly when you think of someone who is a, an exceptional example of what it means to be a Christian, who do you think of? Just take a minute and think of that. Do you think of someone who is more like a monk or more like an activist? You think somebody's more like a monk, you think this person has a very awesome uh, spiritual relationship with the Lord, that their prayer life is, is amazing, that, that, that they are just very in tune. Why? Maybe there's a, a quietness and, and a godliness, a, a, a quiet confidence in the Lord that you admire. If you think of someone who is an activist, maybe you think of somebody who is, who is action-oriented, who is out there serving the needy, right? Who's volunteering in various centers, going on various mission trips to help people who need help, right? We learn from the text that this is a false dichotomy. That a, a mature model of the Christian life is not primarily a monk and not primarily an activist, but some sort of a mixture. So let's read John 12, 1 through 8. It reads, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why hasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and was still part of what was in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your mercy and your kindness. We thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, I pray that today you would demonstrate that your word is eternally true, that you would demonstrate that it is contemporary, that you would demonstrate that it is applicable today. So would you speak through your eternal word to us today, that we would understand who you are and that we would walk and love and obedience to you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we need to understand the context 
of what happened in the verses that were just read. If you just read those verses and you just kind of thought about them, there's a couple of things that are somewhat strange in the verse, maybe some things that are surprising, and certainly things that are confusing. And so I just want to say this. If we don't have context, we will understand absolutely nothing. If we don't have the context of the scriptures, we won't understand the scriptures. If we don't have the context of uh, how people are acting and what, they're, what they are saying, we won't understand them as well. Paying attention, humbling ourselves to understand the context of God's word and the context of our world, we will not be able to understand unless we do that. And so what happens before and after the story that we just read where Mary anointed the feet of Jesus with the hair? It says in in chapter 11, verse 53, it says, so from that day, they, the Jewish leaders, they plotted to kill him, kill him, meaning Jesus. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had already given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so they could arrest him. What is going on is is the religious leaders are looking for Jesus to arrest him and not simply to arrest him. In verse 53, it says that they wanted to kill him. So before you think this is just a, a relaxing meal at the friend's house, understand the context of what's going on. Jesus and his disciples are on the run for the very lives. Immediately after the story that we, read, that we read earlier, it says, then a large crowd of Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one who he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also. And because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing Jesus. So we understand that there is a plot to murder both Jesus and Lazarus. Keep that in your mind as we look at the text. Realize that the fear fear that goes along knowing that someone is plotting to kidnap and assassinate you. This is what is in Jesus' mind, in the minds of his disciples, and in the minds of his friends. You understand that when life is stressful, it heightens your awareness of situations and it creates a somberness and a seriousness even over regular events. I want you to understand this wasn't a cookout in the backyard. This wasn't just relaxing. They were eating together knowing that multiple people in their group were on the list to be killed. This is not a peaceful meal. This is a meal with the looming reality of the death of Jesus. They had plotted to kill him. They had the power to arrest him. And in the middle of looming terror, we see a moment of peace. This is the calm before the storm of the crucifixion. So we can see This thing, and it's very important to notice, that Jesus decided to spend time with his friends in the middle of death threats. 
Look at verse 1. Six, day before, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner there. Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Imagine this meal. They are targets of public hate and in danger from the authorities. This is not a, 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 a party. This is closer to when house churches meet in countries where it's illegal to be Christians. There certainly is joy at seeing your brother and sister, but there also is this danger clouding the back of your mind that at any moment somebody could bust up in this house and take us out. Jesus demonstrates this. We need friends in hard times. We need friends in hard times. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a difficult time. Listen, this is a difficult time. We are not in the same situation, but our nation, our community is in a difficult time. We got the coronavirus. I just read a report that it is in our particular community. It's hit pretty hard. We have the riots, the protests, the conversations. All of things are ha- all these things are happening. And beloved, if you don't surround yourself with friends, you will be drained and you will be unable to face the realities of what's going on. You don't just need to talk to people who will debate you. You need to talk to friends as well. We need each other. We need to encourage one another. We need to seek for times of peace and tranquility in the middle of a storm. Not only are they meeting there with this utmost seriousness, we see that Mary shows extravagant devotion to Jesus in preparation for his death. Look at verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of perfume and pure expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She knows the real probability that Jesus will be killed. Thinking for a minute all that Jesus had done for her and her family, that Jesus had raised her brother from the dead, that Jesus had taught her God's word, the words that explain how much God loves us and cares for us and out of care instructs us. If there is any man that she would want to honor, would it not be Jesus? If there was any man whom she would lament that her, his death was coming, would it not be Jesus? And then we should think of all that Jesus has done for us. Who was the one who has raised us spiritually from the dead? Who was the one who has not only taught us God's word, but put God's law in our hearts and filled our bodies with his spirit? This is the Jesus whom we honor, whom we respect, and whom we worship. He is worthy of extravagant devotion. Has he not demonstrated his commitment? Listen, we are on the other side. We don't know that it just might be a possibility that he would die. We know that he did die and that he did suffer and that he did bleed and that he was nailed to a cross and that he did struggle to breathe on that cross and that he did all of that for us. 
She knew this Jesus who loved her, her family, who taught her God's word, who was willing to sacrifice for her. She wanted to honor this Jesus. When it says that she took a pound of perfume, pure nard, later, it, it, she, somebody says it's worth 300 denarii. That is a year's worth of money. So depending on what kind of job it is for you, that might be 30, 60, 90, 100,000 dollars. She thought that Jesus is worth her investment. That our expression of worship to Jesus is demonstrated by what we spend our money on. That the, those who would all look would say, why would you waste your money like that? Why, why would you do that? And Mary says, my worship, my gratitude to him is worth what you think is a bad investment. Not only that, she shows how much she humbled herself. It says that she washed his feet with her hair. And you understand, this is a Middle Eastern culture that we're talking about. People, women did not have their hair down. It was up, it was covered. And she's saying, I am not afraid to be humiliated, to be ostracized, to be called names in order to show my devotion to you. See, Jesus is worth being socially unacceptable. Our demonstration of love to him does not have to fit in the box of social acceptability. But our love for him should produce a humility that says my actions want to glorify you regardless of if others think I am being crazy or unreasonable or irrational. A lifestyle of worship is known to all. It says that that perfume filled the room. We don't worship Jesus in secret. We don't obey Jesus in secret. She demonstrates what extravagant devotion for Jesus is. And remember, she was doing this in the preparation of his death, knowing that he would die for her. Now, knowing that he has died for us, what type of response is appropriate? Is it not extravagant? Is it not humble? Is it not public? Now, listen, now as she is doing this, she gets some criticism. Verse 4 says, Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was in it. See, would, would, when Jesus is being honored, when Jesus is being worshipped because of his coming death, Jesus, Judas pulls what I call a whataboutism. A whataboutism is when somebody's talking to you about a very important issue, and they go, well, what about this? And it has nothing to do with the present issue. Well, we need to care about black lives. Well, what about, what about? Well, we need to care about the poor. Well, what about? We need to preach the gospel clearly. What about? It is unhelpful and, in fact, hurtful. It is a fact that the poor should be served. But in that conversation, that was not what was being talked about. What was being done was honoring Jesus. Now, if you know Jesus, as Judas did, he would have known 
that Jesus was concerned with the poor. The very first thing he did in his public ministry, Jesus, he read from Isaiah and he talked about that his good news was good news from the, for the poor. In the Beatitudes in Matthew, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke, he says, blessed are the poor. So it's very strange that Judas would bring this charge when he already knew that Jesus cared about the poor. What is he doing? Mary is saying that Jesus' life and his death matter. And Judas, Judas is saying, well, what about the other people? Judas wants to invalidate Mary's concern by positing and putting up another. In other words, in contemporary language, what Judas was doing is he was doing something called virtue signaling. He was trying to demonstrate how good he was by his language and his language alone. It is clear he did not actually care about the poor. If he actually cared about the poor, he wouldn't be stealing money from Jesus' bank, right? But he knew that saying that would mask his fleshly desire to steal more money with the air that he is being religious and good and right. This is a wake-up call for us. We need to be careful that we don't just love in word. That is insufficient. We don't just say the good and the right thing, but we must do the good and the right thing. And look, I just one thing I want to notice when, when I when I looked when I looked at what Judas says, he said it could be given to the poor. I want you to know, notice he didn't say it, this could be given to Bob or Demetrius or Shane. He didn't, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't name somebody. He just said, well, there's this mass of people that I, I don't actually know right now, and they should be given to them. Listen, our service is not for masses of people. Our service is for individuals. The question is, do you know the people that you want to advocate for? We have these big global values as a church this global value of preaching the gospel, this global value of, of producing disciples, and this global value of pursuing justice. But they can't just stay up here. They have to be lived out. And if they are to be lived out, they have to be lived out to people. So we're not just going to talk about preaching the gospel. We actually got to go preach the gospel to people. We're not just talking about producing disciples. We actually have to go make some legitimate, real Disciples. We're not just talking about pursuing justice. We actually have to know people who are in need. This is important. Very few of us are going to have the platform where we can make national change. But every single one of us has the responsibility to love our neighbor. And so let's, let's not get, get so bogged down in language and in arguments and in conversations that we do not put into practice what is important. So we actually need to preach the gospel to actual people. If you are concerned, as you should be, about the evils of abortion, then you need to know actual women who are in crisis pregnancies. If you are concerned about the plight of those who are underserved, then you need to know people who are underserved. 
If you are concerned about racial disparities, then you need to know people that are in the other race. Beloved, let's not love in just word. Let's love indeed. Now here, here, here we get to a verse that's a bit confusing, if you, if you remember, in verse 6 and 7. And so we need to look, what is the relationship between the gospel and the needy? In verse 7 it says, Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. That sounds harsh. sounds confusing. Let's dig into it. She is saying, do not fault her for honoring me and my death. Listen, we should be unashamed, extravagant worshipers of Jesus and understand understand that that if we are doing that that is going to warrant criticism people are going to be confused and frustrated and mad if we say we are going to honor Jesus and we're going to honor his death on the cross and we are going to proclaim his resurrection and we are going to follow him understand that that will will make us receive some unkind thoughts and words Now, what he says in verse 8, we need to understand. He is quoting the Old Testament. He is quoting Deuteronomy 15, 11. And oftentimes, when when a writer wants to quote the Old Testament, you need to understand that the chapter and the verse numbers, that was put in there later. And so when they wanted to quote a scripture, they would say the first part of the scripture. So when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a, the first line of a psalm that is a prophecy about his suffering and about his death. So when he says this first line of Deuteronomy 15, 11, let's read the whole verse. It says, for there will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I'm commanding you. Open your hand willingly to the poor and needy brother in your land. By his reminder that God said that there will be people who are needy and poor around us. We need to understand God said that, but he did not say, therefore, don't care about them. What he's saying is there will always be opportunity to show love and care. And this is important. Remember remember whom he's speaking to. He's speaking to Judas, who says, well, why are you showing all this devotion to Jesus when you need to be go do all this other stuff? And Jesus is saying, listen, we will always have time to do that. That will always be a thing that we can do. We always have time to help those who are needy because we live in a broken world. But understand that our relationship with God shapes our ability to interact with other people well. Listen, if Mary was showing such honor to the creator how then should she act towards the creation? Listen, we treat the creation with dignity when we know and honor the creator. You all know this. If, if a child brings you a piece of art and you take it and you crumble it up, you crumble the piece of artwork up, what is the child going to do? The child is going to cry because she's like, I, I created this. Why are you treating it like that? But that's not what most of us do. When we take a piece of paper, when a child gives us a coloring page, even if it's a bad piece of coloring page, we go, man, that's awesome. It's not necessarily awesome because you made it awesome. It's awesome because I like you and I respect you. 
this is the attitude that we have to have if we are going to be those who would preach the gospel and honor the Jesus that the gospel explains to us. If we're going to honor the creator, we have to honor the creation. The fact that you will always have the poor is not a reason to ignore the poor, but the fact that there is always an opportunity to serve. And so what Jesus is saying to Judas and what he's saying to us is stop making a false dichotomy. We have to both praise and honor and worship and proclaim the Jesus in the Gospels, his death for sinners, his resurrection, his defeating of our sin and our shame. We proclaim that. And we also help those who are in need. We do not put them at odds with one another. I want to talk about how, how does the glory of God relate to serving others? See, God is glorified when we honor the gospel. God is glorified when we honor the Savior. In fact, the gospel is our only source for life and mission. That is why the gospel is of first importance. In 1 Corinthians 15, that's exactly what Paul says. We can be doing a lot of stuff, but what is of first importance, what is the foundation and the fuel of what we do is the news that Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead, defeating our sins, sin, the shame, the devil. He defeated all these things. And that fact is the root and the source and the fuel for everything else. We also need to know this, that God is glorified by real love and real proclamation of the gospel to those who are needy around us. In John 20, 21, Jesus looks at his disciples after he is resurrected and he says, as the father has sent me, so I send you. Now, think about that. How did the, is it, I want you to understand this. Jesus came to save the world. He came to die for the sins of the world. He did not leave Judea. Even though he had a global mission, he was invested relationally with actual real people. So as the father has sent him, so the father sends us. What does this mean? We need time with the Lord and with his people. In times of fear, times of confusion and frustration, we need to be with the Lord. We need to be with his people. We need to be encouraged. We need to be prayed for. We need to do regular things like eating together. Lord willing, we'll get to eat together soon. We need to be with one another. We need time with the Lord to fill us up for obedience. Listen, worship Worship and devotion is not the opposite of action and service. Worship and devotion give you fuel for action and service. Listen, if we don't have a long-term view of what it means to follow Jesus and to serve others, and if we are not consistently filled up with Jesus, we will grow weary and we will quit. But we need to understand that we need time with the Lord, receiving his love, remembering what he has done for us in the gospel. We need time with him to fill us up. 
There's a, there's a story of, of a group of, of nuns who worked among the poorest of the poor. And what they would do is they would take one day to work and just put all their energy in service to the poor. And then the next day, they would spend the whole day in prayer. And they would do that over and over and over again. We need to understand that if we're going to have rhythms of following Jesus, then we need to have rhythms of imitating Jesus, of being with the Father, and then going to be with people, and then going to be with the Father, and go to be with people. We need to love and serve specific people and groups of people. So that means for you, you need to take inventory. What are the things that you say that you care about? And what are the legitimate things you're doing that demonstrates you care about it? Man, listen. Our church and our, us individually are not going to solve the problem of poverty. We're not going to solve the problem of of, uh, of abortion. We're not going to solve these macro problems. But what we can do is that we can invest in individuals and small groups of people that we would take our large values of gospel, of producing disciples, of pursuing justice. And the only way that we can actually live those out is by investing in real time with people. That's my prayer for us, that we would be fueled by the gospel and devotion so that we could pursue action and service. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would, um, would you help this word sit and, 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 and produce fruit in us? Would we be encouraged by the goodness of your gospel? And would we seek to live out the reality and the implications of that gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.